Galatians chapter 4. We have been going through the book of Galatians, and now we are really to one of my favorite parts of the book of Galatians. One of the um, most important passages for understanding what does it mean to be an adopted son or daughter of God, and why is that so important? Um, J.I. Packer, who's a theologian and Christian writer, um, almost, almost dead now, <laughs> actually. I don't laugh. I mean, that's sad. He's old. He's really old. Um, but, uh, you know, so, some of my favorite books that I've ever read as a Christian, some of the most helpful books I've ever read as a Christian have been by J.I. Packer. Um, he has a book called Knowing God, Knowing God, which is a great book. Um, and a chapter in there that's a particularly great chapter is uh, on this topic of adoption. It's called The Sons of God. And he has another chapter in there called The Heart of the Gospel. It's worth buying the book for those two chapters. And in the chapter on the sons of God, he says this. Our understanding of Christianity, and this is actually is under the first point here, but I thought it would make for a better intro before I read the scripture. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he or she makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as their father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls their worship and prayers and whole outlook on life, it means that they do not understand Christianity very well at all. If you want to understand how well somebody gets Christianity, how much do they make of the fact that they're an adopted child of God and that he's their father? That's a, that's a pretty bold statement. And I think it's supported by our passage. I think as, as we get into this passage, you'll see that the Bible does agree with what Packer is saying here, that Christ, Christianity teaches that adoption is really the apex, the highest point of what it means to be a Christian is to have this privilege. And yet it's not something that I think a lot of Christians are that familiar with. Maybe we pray to God as our Father, but we don't really understand what does it mean that we've been adopted, that we've been brought into God's family, not just welcomed into His presence as His friends through justification, but we've been brought into His very family through adoption. And that's what Paul is getting at here in chapter the end of chapter 3 and into chapter 4. We're actually starting at chapter 3, verse 26. If you have the uh, a Bible, read with me. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, and heirs according to the promise. What I am saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he's no different from a slave. Though he owns the whole estate, he's subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who cries out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, 
but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand what is the big deal about being a son of God. Why is Paul so excited about this? How can this help us? How can this bring glory to you for us to receive this and to embrace this? Help us, we pray. Send your spirit to help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I should say this right off the bat. Ladies, to be in the kingdom of God, you have to embrace this idea that you're a son of God. We just sang, you know, that song, um, I, Thy True Son. I actually remember going up to a, to a Christian college and leading worship, and they made me change that, that line so that it would be um, gender neutral and not just I, Thy True Son. All I can say is, ladies, that guys have to understand what does it mean to be the bride of Christ, Okay, ladies need to understand what does it mean to be a son of God. There's, particular, there's a particular difference between sons and daughters. The, the privileges that were accorded to sons under Roman law were not given to daughters. So the, the reason that, it, that Paul says sons, it, 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 it matters because there were certain privileges and um, rights that sons had that daughters didn't have. It doesn't mean that God doesn't like daughters. Um, but it means that there's something special. So don't let that be a hang-up as we go through this um, tonight. What is, what is this about here? The, the, the basic point is this. Adoption is a reality for all Christians. If you are a Christian, you have been adopted into God's family. And Jesus came so that you could be adopted into God's family. And the Spirit was sent so that you could feel like a son and a daughter of God. That's the basic thing that Paul's laying out here. Everybody who is a Christian has been adopted. It's the highest privilege, and it's been given to you. If you're a Christian, you've been given it. If you're not a Christian, you need to understand that this is what Christianity says it's all about. And that Jesus came not just to redeem us, but to make us sons and daughters. And the Spirit was sent so that we would feel like sons and daughters. And so what you see is, like through this lens of adoption, you get an understanding of what's true of all Christians. You get an understanding of what is really at the heart of Christ's work. What did He come to do, ultimately? And what is the Spirit for? What did the Spirit of Christ come to do? What is the Holy Spirit all about? That's a pretty pretty important topic. So this, this lens of adoption helps us understand who we are, what Christ came to do, and why the Spirit was sent. And it's all about adoption. Adoption is our highest privilege. I read you uh, that quote from Packer. I won't read it again. But we, end, we tend to emphasize, and I've been talking because it's what Galatians has been talking about up to this point, about the idea of justification. And you remember, uh, we've said that justification is basically getting the well done, getting the commendation from God. It is basically God declaring that you're beautiful in his sight because you've done everything that he requires. Justification is God declaring that you're beautiful in his sight because you've done everything that he requires. Now, of course, what you understand if you've been tracking with us in Galatians is you don't get that declaration from God because you've done everything God requires. You don't get that declaration because you really tried 
to do everything that God requires. You don't get that declaration because you sincerely wished that you tried. You get that declaration because Jesus did everything that God requires, and it was beautiful. And all of those who are Christians are those who get credit for what Jesus did. That's justification. It means that no longer are you an enemy of God. The Bible says that if you're not justified, that you're an enemy of God. Justification is how you're brought back into friendship with God. But the Bible goes on and says even more that, that Christ didn't come merely to redeem us so that we could be God's friends. That Jesus came, Paul says here, so that we could be sons, given the full rights of sons. Now, Paul didn't make this up. And actually, if you go back to John chapter 1, the Bible says, says this. I put this, this quote here. It's under point 3. Um, it, it says this in chapter 1 of John. To all who received him, meaning Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children not, born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. From the very beginning, this is why Jesus came, John says. And this is what Paul says. This is the highest point of what Jesus came to bring us, was this being brought into God's family. Now, now why is this important? What does this mean? Well, one of the things it means, and the thing that Paul starts with here in this section, is that there are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. Because you see what he says here. He says, you are all sons of God through faith. For all of you, verse 27, who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Doesn't matter if you're Jewish or Greek, slave or free, male or female, you're all one in Christ Jesus. You've all had this privilege, this experience of being adopted into God's family. What that means is there are no second-class citizens in God's family. Why is that important? Well, you see, the Galatians were coming along, or the, the, the false teachers who'd come to the Galatians were saying, Paul taught you some stuff. He didn't really give you the full understanding. He kind of got you started, but there really is some other stuff you need to know if you really want to be a spiritual Christian. And Paul demolishes that idea. Any idea, anybody that would teach you that there's something you need, that you still need besides Jesus to be a sort of higher level Christian, whether it's speaking in tongues or it's you know, giving your body to the flames, whatever it is. And you can, there's a whole gamut of possibilities of things that people say, you really need this in addition to Jesus. Paul says, no, if you have Jesus, if you've been baptized into Jesus, you have the adoption into his family. And there's nothing higher. You can't have anything else. And you got that when you became a Christian. You didn't get that by obeying the law. You didn't get that by living as a Christian for a long time and finally you graduated to this higher level. No, not at all. If you're a Christian, you have this, period. And this is as good as it gets. Now, of course, the interesting thing is the Bible says you have this adoption of sons. There are times when you experience it, times when you doubt it. But in Romans 8, it says there's a coming day when you will be adopted still in the future. And that's a really interesting thing. But I think what, what the way to understand it is this. You have been adopted 
even now by what Jesus did. The Spirit has been sent to convince you that that's true, that you really are a child of God. And yet there is a day coming when God himself will declare for everyone to hear, this is my child in whom I am well pleased. And, and Paul says in Romans 8 that we're even now groaning. The whole creation is groaning, awaiting the adoption of God's sons and the freedom that will come with that. So the highest privilege that you have, there's still that already not tension. But understand this, there's nothing else that you need to get. If you're a Christian, you've been welcomed into God's family, you've been adopted. It's the highest privilege. Now last, you know, really Paul is saying the same thing I was talking about last week, but he's saying it in a different way. To get this idea, um, last week, you remember, I talked about the difference between a promise agreement and a law agreement and how the gospel is a promise agreement, and that if you're a Christian, you have everything you have because God promised and because God kept his promise. You don't have it because you worked for it. You don't have it because you earned it in some sort of way. To be a Christian is to be somebody who God has made and kept his promise to bless you in ways you don't deserve. That's what it means to be a Christian. Now, Paul here tonight is saying, there's another way of understanding what it means to be a Christian. It means to be one who has a heavenly father, to be a child who trusts this heavenly father. And they're really kind of two different ways of saying the same thing. Because to understand the gospel as a promise means you understand that God is the promisor who does it all. But a true child of God, you see, is someone who understands this very thing, that God does everything and you look to him you look to him for everything, just like a child who lifts up his arms and cries out, just assuming that, of course, daddy will pick them up. My, my little Amelia loves to do this. Daddy, hold me. Daddy, hold me. That's what daddies do, right? And she's not wrong to cry out that way. It's not wrong to cry out that way. Neither are we, because we have been given this privilege and this status. We are God's children. We don't have to act like we're merely his friends. Now, for some of us, it's a pretty awe-inspiring idea even to think that we could be God's friends. It, it, it requires a lot of faith for us to even believe that God isn't always continually disappointed with us and ashamed of us. And that justification deals with that. If you're a Christian, God is not ashamed of you because he can't be ashamed of Christ. And when he looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Christ. But even beyond that, you are a child of God if you're a Christian. There are no second-class Christians. What, what Paul is saying is here, this idea that you have been adopted into God's family is more basic to your identity than your gender, than what you do, your station in life. I mean, he says male or female is secondary to this defining fact about you. You're a child of God. Whether you're slave or free, whether you're the boss or you're the employee, whether you're Jewish or Greek, whatever nationality you are, whatever ethnicity you are, whatever race you are, that's all secondary to this defining reality that you're an adopted child of God if you're a Christian. Adoption is the culmination of the believer's blessings. And it's vital, you see, for the Galatians to understand this because one of the ways that they're getting tripped up 
into thinking that they need more and that they need to do more to get God to love them is they've forgotten what they already have. We're always most vulnerable to these kinds of false teachers coming along and saying, well, you've got, you've got part of this, but you really need to do this so that God will really love you. We're vulnerable to that when we forget that we already have the adoption of, as God's sons and son, God's daughters. We always are, are forgetting what we have and then feeling like we have to earn it all over again. And so Paul comes in and says, no, you do not have to earn acceptance into God's family. You have been brought into acceptance at the most deeply intimate level. You've been brought into his very family and you can't do anything. You don't need to do anything else. There's no higher blessing. You already have the highest blessing and you got it by grace. In, in other words, what Paul is saying, I think here, is that to fall back into legalism is to give up the highest privilege that Jesus has procured for you. It's not just that believing and falling into this idea that I need to work, work, work so that God will love me. It's not just that that makes your life miserable. You remember we talked about it earlier, how we said that Paul says that anyone who is under the law is under a curse. That if you're trying to earn God's favor and God's smile by your obedience and your law keeping, it will put you experientially and legally under a curse. So it's not, it's not just that this makes you miserable to forget that you're a son and daughter of God. It actually insults the work that Jesus did. Because as he says here, Jesus came to give us the full rights of sons. And when we don't act or appropriate our sonship, when we go around moping around like we don't have a heavenly father, like nobody cares for us, nobody's looking out for us, when we walk around acting like that, we're insulting, we're insulting the work that Jesus came to do. Of course it makes you miserable, but for the glory of God, we need to embrace and believe what his word says about who we are. Do you realize that? See, here's this interesting thing. It seems, it seems like a kind of humility when we don't really feel like, well, I don't really deserve to be a son of God or a daughter of God, and I can't believe that he really looks at me that way. I'm just such a miserable peon when it comes to holiness. He doesn't really need me. He can't really use me. And you may think that, oh, wow, that person must be really holy because they're certainly not arrogant or boastful. But in fact, they are. Because in fact, they've substituted what they feel like for what God has said. And we do that all the time when we feel like, well, I know God says that I'm a child of God, but I don't feel like a child of God, and my feelings trump what he says. That's actually cleverly disguised arrogance. And it insults Christ. Did he accomplish the work that he came to do? Did he make you a child of God if you're a Christian? Absolutely. You can count on it. Why would we want to stay? Why would we want to stay like little children? Do you see what Paul says here? We're not like little children who still need these trustees and these guardians. We've been given the full mature reality of what God had been planned to give us. We've been given it. So why would we still want to live like miserable, slavish little children? Christ was sent to make us sons, and he did it. 
Look at verse 5. When we were children, sorry, when um, Christ, or, sorry, it's actually verse 4. I don't know why I wrote verse 5 there. It's verse 4 and 5 together. When the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law so that we might receive the full rights of sons. Do you see? The redemption is a means to an end. I, I think so often in Christianity, I meet so many Christians that what they understand, if you ask them, what does it mean to be a Christian? Rarely will they talk about, it means that I'm an adopted child of God, that Jesus redeemed me from sin and from death so that I could have the full rights and the full welcome and the full embrace of being a child of God. We don't think like that very much. When more we tend to think, well, to be a Christian means that I accepted Jesus into my heart and now I know that I won't go to hell and I know that I need to try and read my Bible and I need to evangelize my roommate and I really need to try to quit going to drinking parties, right? <laughs> That's not, it's no wonder that we're miserable. No, Jesus didn't die. Jesus didn't die just so that you could, so, so that you could walk around and say, hey, glory, hallelujah, I've been redeemed. Wonderful as that is, Paul says that actually is, a, is sort of a means to an end of something even greater here. Do you realize that? It's not just that you get redeemed, it's that you get welcomed into the family. That's what Jesus was sent to do. Jesus, the faithful son, came to die on a cross as a traitor so that you could be welcomed as a faithful son and daughter. Jesus was rejected so that you would never be rejected. Jesus' work on the cross was to secure your welcome into the family of God and to guarantee that you would never be cast out. That's what Jesus came to do. You know, um, I think one of, the, one of the places where you see this so, so well is in the prodigal son story. And, what, and a lot of people, I think, don't understand the full, rich significance of that story. But Jesus told that story because there were Pharisees that were complaining that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors. And so Jesus tells this story about a younger son who goes off, right? And I'm going to talk about this a little more in a minute. But the, the point I want you to get here is the younger son goes off. The older son, in his arrogance, does not welcome the younger son but not only that, people in the first century understood not only was it bad that the older son doesn't go into the party and enter into his father's joy, that's bad enough, but the older son should have went after the younger son. In that culture, the older son would have been expected to go after the younger brother. And what Jesus is saying is, I'm the older brother who has come to seek after the prodigal who's been lost, to bring them back into God's family. Jesus is saying with this parable, I'm the one who has come to make you sons and daughters of the living God. How do I see that? Well, look, if you look in Luke 15, the prodigal son is actually the third in a series of parables. And in those other two parables, you always have a seeker, something that's lost, but there's always somebody who's seeking in the prodigal son parable, conspicuous by its absence is the seeker because Jesus himself is the seeker. And that's exactly what the Pharisees are complaining about, that Jesus is seeking after these sinners and giving them this idea that they could actually be welcomed into God's family. He's eating with them for crying out loud. 
He's communicating to them that they're welcome. How dare he? And Jesus says, don't you realize you should be seeking after these lost sons and daughters of Israel? The Father has sent me to make these lost sons and daughters children of the Heavenly Father. It's what I came to do. It's not just a little peripheral you know, thing. It's the central part of what I'm here to do. Jesus came to make us sons and daughters. And we get this legal status when we become a Christian. The problem is we don't often feel it, do we? I think, think about adopting our own little girl. And I think, um, you know, if you've never seen the movie, you should watch our little movie. Because one of the things that's really interesting is, you know, in China when we got Amelia, they, they hand you this baby. <laughs> and, you know, you've seen a picture of her from maybe six months before. I mean, if you see in the video, you see Wendy's not even sure when they hand her Amelia that that's really our daughter, right? But we very quickly get it. She's our daughter. We, we welcome her. We begin to take care of her. But you know, even though she's our daughter, it takes her a while before she feels like she's our daughter, right? It took days before we got a smile out of her. So it is with us. We have the status. But God, God is not content with you merely knowing that you have the status. He wants to give us the experience. He wants us to feel like sons and daughters of the living God. And that's why he sends the Spirit. This is amazing. Look at verse 6. Because you are sons, because you have this status, God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave but a son, and since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. Do you see this? Jesus came to make us sons and daughters. The Spirit was sent so that you would feel like a son and a daughter of God's. This is more than just having a status. Verse 6 is talking about something more. Something more than just having this legal status. The legal status is wonderful. It's huge. It's tantamount to being born again. To be adopted into God's family means you have a whole new identity. You have a whole new um, a whole new, whole new world opened up to you, right? In, in the Roman law, and this is actually interesting, in, in U.S. law and in Roman law, you can disinherit your natural-born children, but you cannot disinherit an adopted child. Do you know that? If you're, if you're a natural-born child, your parents can disinherit you. You can't do that. You have to sign papers saying that you will never do that when you adopt a child. There's a credible security to this status that we have. In Roman law, when you became an adopted child, all of your debts were canceled. Your adopted parent took basically responsibility for any debt that you would incur, right? And promised to take care of you and to make you an heir. As a matter of fact, most of the people in Roman society that were adopted were adults, Often somebody who was wealthy, who didn't have an heir, would adopt an adult person to become their heir. This is a, it's a powerful thing to all of a sudden be given things that you don't deserve. And that's what it is to be an adopted child. And this is what the Spirit is sent to convince us is true. It's one thing for me to tell you. It's another thing for the Spirit to come into your heart and convince you that what the Bible says is actually true. 
This is, this is what's happening. And the thing is, we need this. We need more than just the status. We need the spirit because we fight and we resist the reality that we could be welcomed into God's family as his children. We do. It's insane, but we do. And you see this in the prodigal son parables, one of the best places. The prodigal son, basically, after he goes and his life is miserable and it's falling apart, the Bible says he comes to his senses in the pig uh, fields and he decides to go back to his father and he practices a speech. And it's very revealing what he says. What he plans to say to his father is, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I have no right to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. Now, it's interesting. It seems like he's coming, crawling back, asking for mercy. He actually prepare, proposes what he plans to say is actually demand his father, make him like one of the hired men. He does not think that the father is generous enough or rich enough or good enough to make him a son again. But he's asking and even demanding the opportunity to work off his debt. He wants to come back as a hired man to work off his debt. He still doesn't understand that the father wants to make him a son. Okay? And so it is with the older brother as well. In the very end of the parable, when um, the older brother is out in the fields and he comes back and he hears partying going on and he asks one of the servants, what's going on? And the, the, the servant says, well, your, son, your younger son who was dead is now home and the father has killed the fatted calf and the older son gets very upset. And the father comes out to him, which is pretty amazing because he was insulting the father by not going into the party. And yet the father still comes out to him and says, son, why are you doing this? And the son says, again, very revealing, he says, all my life I've slaved for you. The translations don't say work, but he, he really says, all my life I've slaved for you, and you never gave me a fatted calf to enjoy a party with my friends. You see, both the younger son and the older son, neither one of them understand or embrace what it means to be a child of God. In other words, there's, there, you can reject the idea of being God's child by running around and living an obviously non-Christian life. But you can also reject the sonship of God by being trapped in your own arrogance and your own religiosity. It's difficult for Christians to embrace and to submit to the idea that God is our Father. Why? Because we would rather be in control. We would rather work things off our own debt. We would rather have God in our debt then be completely dependent upon his grace and his mercy. We have the status of sons, Sinclair Ferguson said one time, but the mindset of servants. It's true, isn't it? We need the Spirit. And the good news is that God gives us the Spirit. The experience of sonship is what he's talking about here. And this is an experiential thing he's talking about. It brings deep assurance. It brings deep security. And God wants us to have this. God does not want you to be wondering whether you're welcome in his embrace. He doesn't want you wondering whether you're welcome in his family. And there is a difference between knowing you have the status and feeling it. The Puritans used to call this experience God's kisses. And I, and I like the way they refer to it that way because what they're indicating and helping us understand is that this experience is not something that we have all the time, perfectly consistently. There are times 
when we're convincing ourselves and saying to ourselves what we know is true, that I'm an adopted child of God, I'm a Christian, therefore I'm an adopted child of God, the Bible says it, I can count on it. There are times when we're doing that. There are other times when the Spirit comes and preaches that to your heart where you don't have to try and talk yourself into believing it. That's what he's talking about here. The work of the Spirit is to do that. And the Puritans would say that there are times when that happens in an overwhelming way. Have you ever had this kind of experience of, of praising God, thanking God, and, and he, the Spirit just comes and testifies with your spirit that you're a child of God? That's what's being talked about here. I love um, Thomas Goodwin, who was one of the Puritans, had this great way of explaining this. He said, imagine there's a, a man walking down the street and he's got his little boy's hand and they're walking down the street. And all of a sudden, the father kind of jerks his boy up and gives him a big bear hug. And what, what Goodwin says is the, the little boy is no more a son when he's in his father's arms as he is when he's walking next to his father. But oh, the difference in the experience. And this is the experience that God is wanting to give to his children, that the Spirit has come to do. The Spirit has come to give us this. Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, has a sermon on the prodigal son where he has these, this amazing section where he says, look, the, the son, the prodigal son, when he gets welcomed back in, he's given the status of a son, he's welcomed as a son, he's given the ring, He's given the, the ring, the trust. He's given the fatted calf. But the father goes beyond that. And it says in Luke 15, and he kissed him. What does it mean that the father kissed his son? It's the same idea that Paul's talking about here. The spirit comes to give us God's kiss. To let us know that he loves us and he welcomes us. Now, what does this feel like? What does this feel like? Paul says the Spirit cries, Abba, Father. And I wish the NIV didn't say calls out, Abba, Father, because it's way too weak. The, la the Greek language here is much stronger. We cry out. It's the same word used of Christ crying out on the cross. It's an intense word. One of the things that that helps you to understand is that intensity of feeling, groaning, screaming, raging is all consistent with being a child of God. Because Jesus was the Son of God crying out on the cross, right? But, but it also means that there's something that, that's, there's something that happens that, that is, it's, it's, it's something that's supernatural that Paul's talking about here. It's more than just you saying, well, I know, that I'm a, I know that I'm a child of God because the Bible says it and I believe it. And that settles it. No, there's something in which that there's a cry that even happens that resonates with you, that I, you, you just intuitively know that I'm a child of God. Now, the, the, the intuition isn't by itself, or you'd be wondering, is that really real? I mean, I, I remember one time a, a kid told me that he was a Christian. I remember asking him, how did he know he was a Christian? He said, well, I was driving really, really fast in my car, and I just felt the love of God. And I, I kind of wanted him to go on, but there was no, nothing else to the testimony. Now, you know, he had the experience of being a son, but I'm not sure it was really connected to the redemptive work of Christ because he'd never trusted in Jesus. He'd never thrown himself upon the mercy of Jesus, right? So understand here, the doctrine and the experience are connected together. And, and that gets us kind of to this last, this last little point. How do you get it? I think there's a clue here in this passage. Um, Jesus came 
to do this, to give us the full rights of sons through the redemptive work that he did, I think what Paul is teaching us here is that you need to be focused on that. You need to think about that. You need to meditate on that. You need to speak about that to yourself. You need to praise God for that. These things are connected. The experience and the doctrine are connected. And we live in a day and an age when there are a lot of Christians who say, I want the experience, but I don't like doctrine. I don't want to have anything to do with doctrine. As a matter of fact, doctrine is the biggest impediment to spiritual experience that I know of. And then there are other Christians who say, I don't know about spiritual experience. Just tell me the doctrine. I want doctrine. I don't want to really feel things because feeling things makes me feel out of control. And I'm not really sure what's going on. But Paul says here that they're connected. He gives us this doctrinal statement about what's true in verse 4 and 5. It almost reads like a little catechism. And then he says, because this is true, God has sent the Spirit so that you would feel it and you would know it. In other words, you, you have to kind of go from the knowing what's true, praise God, thank God for it, embrace it, speak it to yourself, speak it to each other, sing it, try and get it into your heart. And it's generally that's when the Spirit comes. The Spirit works with the means of grace, the word, prayer, the sacraments, to convince you that you really are a child of God. But it's not disconnected from the doctrine. If anything, it's an intensification where you experience the doctrine, you don't just know about it. So what Paul is saying is you don't get this experience of sonship just out of the blue. It comes from understanding and focusing and meditating upon the doctrine and praising God for it, praising God that he sent the son to live and die in your place so that you could be welcomed as a son. Have you ever thanked God for that? Have you ever just fallen on your face and praised God for what he's done, praised Jesus for what he's done, thanked him that he's brought you into his family and asked him to send the spirit to convince you that this is no, these aren't just words, these aren't just ideas. This is true. This is reality. This is more basic to who you are than your gender, than what you do, than your family, than your race. Because that's what, that's what this passage is teaching us. That's what this passage is teaching us. A couple of concluding applications. Having a bad father does not thwart God in his purpose to make you a son or a daughter of God. Hallelujah. And having a bad father does not thwart the power of the Spirit to make you feel like a son or daughter of God. Repent. Repent of unbelief if you think that your baggage is more powerful than the work of Christ and the Spirit of God. Ask your friends to pray for you that you would believe that the Spirit of God is more powerful than your story. That the Son of God and the work He did on your behalf on the cross is more powerful than your baggage. That's why I love that hymn from Henry Light. It gives me hope that a man who had an atrocious father, that for him he could write a hymn where the father image is a warm and tender one. Where did he get the idea that, that father-like means he gently tends and bears us because that's not what he experienced. He didn't experience that from his earthly father. But the Spirit of God and the work of Christ can undo and remake the father image for his children, and he does all the time. I, I won't talk about all these, but I, I will say this last one. Number three, 
adoption is really key to understanding the role of the Spirit. There's a lot of, lot of confusion about what, what is the work of the Spirit. Always ask this question. When people tell you that the Spirit's doing this or the Spirit's doing that, is, is what the Spirit's doing helping these people be more convinced that they're sons and daughters of the living God? The Spirit comes for that purpose. It's pretty strong here, isn't it? The Spirit was sent not just to do signs and wonders and to show off. The Spirit was not just sent to reveal the Bible. The Spirit was sent not just for all these things, but the Spirit was sent so that we would feel like sons and daughters. That's, that's a pretty amazing statement that Paul makes here. And um, you should always test claims about what the Spirit's doing by that. Is it helping? Is it fit in with what Paul says the Spirit was sent to do? And finally, if you want a good cry, watch our movie. It's about 10 minutes. You can watch it online. Um, I don't know how to explain to you just what adoption has meant for our family, but I just, I think there's no more beautiful picture um, of the goodness of God and the grace of God than seeing adoption and seeing it firsthand, to seeing a child who had no earthly hope in the world. Everything is different now. My, my friend Scott Rowley has this, this wonderful, wonderful story where he talks about one of his little boys who when they were driving around the circle in Franklin, if you've ever been to Franklin, it's one of those old kind of southern towns where you have the courthouse and then you have kind of a roundabout little circle. And, and Scott would talk about how he'd love to take his boys and go round and round as fast as he could around that little circle. And one day as they were doing that, one of his boys said, Daddy, that's where I was born, and pointed at the courthouse. Because that's where he was adopted. That's where he became a Roly. And everything was different. Being adopted in the family of God is tantamount to being born again. Everything is different. Do you know that? Do you feel that? Do you live that? Let's pray that the Spirit would, would help us to embrace and to appropriate and to feel what's true. Jesus, we do thank you for your work on the cross. Even the word thank you seems so trite and so weak. We need bigger words. But Lord, we're, we're so thankful and so grateful that you didn't just redeem us, but you gave us the full rights of sons. We don't even begin to understand what that means, what security, what privilege, what access that is. But we pray that you would send your spirit upon this community, these people right here, all of us, that we would begin to taste what that means, that it would set us free from our fears, that it would set us free from all of our childish sins, the ways we look for satisfaction and security outside of you. Lord, would you send your spirit, send your spirit to convince us that we really are your children, in spite of the way we live, in spite of the way we feel, because Jesus has made us sons. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.